Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Irish Balance podcast. Today's episode is our very first interview, and I am so, so excited. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you're a regular follower, welcome back. My name is Kira, as many of you may know, and I'm an Irish girl and qualified medical doctor. And I use my blog, The Irish Balance, and my social media at The Irish Balance, and now this lovely podcast to share with you simple, healthy lifestyle messages about how we can empower ourselves to live lives full of balance. I share a lot of content on my blog and now the podcast too. And up until now, it's been me chatting away to you guys on the podcast, but I'm absolutely delighted this week to bring you our very first interview and guest. So welcome, Dr. Steffi Mary. Steffi is a really good friend of mine. She is a doctor as well, as you might have guessed, and she's an integrative medicine fellow. And she and I have really gotten to know each other really well over many a coffee over the last year, chatting all things health and wellness. Steffi, welcome to the Irish Balance Podcast. How are you doing this evening? Very well. And thank you, Kira. As you know, I'm a big fan of your blog. Oh, well, I'm a big fan of yours as well. We'll have to, we'll have to put all the links now in that at the end. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Steffi, and maybe a little bit about integrative medicine and how you got started in it? Sure, I'd love to. As you know, over our coffees, it's something I, I love to talk about. Mm. Um, I'm conscious that at least some of your listeners will be young doctors as well. So I guess I joined medicine and signed up for a career in medicine largely because a school friend of mine actually died of cancer, of bone cancer. And mm. um, as a teenager, I was I was very touched by by that. So I did medicine and I chose a career in medicine over surgery. And I did a, a PhD, I did a master's in London, I trained in America, I spent 10 years working in Africa. And I guess I was really impressed by so much of medicine. Um, the successes in medicine are amazing and modern medicine is amazing. But there was always a part of me that thought there was something missing. It's almost like the soul of medicine to some degree. Mm. And I know some doctors who are listening will immediately know what I'm talking about. And it's like the medicine I signed up for, I never really found. I probably came as close to it as I've ever come working in Africa. Yeah. And I was really curious to know how could I find that medicine that I, I dreamed of as a teenager. And then I learned about integrative medicine. And what I discovered was the type of medicine that we practice is known as reductionist or Cartesian medicine. And you, Many of the listeners I know will have heard of the French philosopher Descartes. Mm. And what happened was Descartes wanted to study human anatomy. He went to the French church and they said, sure, we'll give you bodies and you can study them. But you cannot study the mind or the spirit or the soul. So up until that, Western medicine was totally holistic. But on that day, a decision was made that Western medicine would only study the body. So in many ways, that's why we've been so successful, because we've focused on one thing and like there's no one better than us at knowing which molecule attaches to which molecule. Absolutely. But, yeah, we're good at that, right? But mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about when I say the soul and the spirit and the mind are hugely important. And it's not something that certainly in hospital medicine we do really well. Mm. Well, integrative medicine is all about bringing the mind and the body and the soul back into medicine. And I love that concept. And a man called Andrew Weil, who some of you may know as the Harvard hippie, and he <laughs> like, hangs out with Oprah. He's, he's pretty cool. So he's he good company. <laughs> he, he keeps good company. And he also hangs out with John Kabat-Zinn, who's oh, pretty wow. much yeah, the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction. 
So they set up a program in Tucson, Arizona, which they call integrative medicine, and it has a number of principles. So it basically says you take the very best of Western medicine, right? So we don't leave anything that's successful behind. So if you need an antibiotic, if you need surgery, yeah, absolutely, you'll have it. But it also wonders, what else could we take from other healing traditions? So when Western medicine went reductionist, Chinese medicine did not, and Ayurvedic or Indian medicine did not, and Buddhism did not. So there's a lot we can learn from these whole body healings. So integrative medicine says, take the best of the West, layer in all of the things from complementary and alternative medicine that are proven. So we're not going to use anything woo-woo or snake oil. Okay, <laughs> we remain doctors. We've got the Hippocratic Oath going on. Okay. And then on top of that, we look at lifestyle factors because we know that, okay, in medical school, we learned a long time ago that um, genetics are really important. But we now know that even if you're born with the gene for breast cancer, you will only express that gene in 80% of cases if some epigenetic or lifestyle factors come into play. Mm. And those are things like diet and sleep and stress management. So integrative medicine says we take the best of Western, we take the best of complementary and alternative that's proven, we layer in lifestyle factors. And then the final, and I think the most important piece, is it says that the healthcare provider has to emulate the practices. So in other words, the whole model of a doctor, you may have read the book When Breath Becomes Air about the neurosurgeon who dies. I that read is it not, last year. Oh my did God. You? Yeah, well, amazing, yeah. right? Amazing. And, and the doctor in that book actually grows up very near Tucson in Arizona, which is where the integrative medicine sort of epicenter is. Mm. But this is a doctor who was like amazing and did all the right things career-wise, but his epigenetics were terrible. So this poor man gets cancer and eventually dies. Um, and so what integrative medicine says is, you know what, it's not good enough for us to sacrifice ourselves for our patients and show bad example. So staying mm. up all night and being stressed and eating junk food, that that's not the way. So it's like a Chinese or Buddhist concept of the Tao or the Tao or the way, the way in which we do things is important. And that starts with ourselves. So I think it's a really amazing concept. And to me, it's put the soul into medicine, brought the soul back into medicine. And it makes me a much happier doctor. That's really, really inspiring to hear. And there's so many points to, I don't even know where to begin to, to kind of tease that apart a little bit. I guess, could you tell us, you, you just recently completed a fellowship in this in, in Arizona last year, isn't that correct? That's right, yeah. Now, what was so, that like? Wow. So, okay, the truth is, when I signed up for the fellowship, I was very nervous about telling my peers because I thought, oh my gosh, when I go, they'll all be wearing purple and they'll all be wearing yoga pants and they'll be weird. <laughs> and I, I did. And there's still a part of me that goes, I have a PhD in pharmacology. So, you know, I don't mm. do this woo-woo stuff. But anyway, I was drawn to Tucson. And a couple of things really struck me. And the first was that the other members of my class were amazing. So like the head of neonatal intensive care in UCSF is in my class. Um, like I say, Andrew Weil, the course director, is one of the few people who has publications in both science and nature. Mm. So, like, this is not light science. This is like the real deal. Absolutely. And the other thing is, and this is a concept that's very integrative. So the course takes place in this incredibly beautiful resort in the Sonoran Desert. It's actually on Native American land. Mm. 
But Andrew Weil, who's a cook, takes over the kitchen in the resort. And so all the food we eat for the course is epigenetically favorable. So any of you who've ever gone, yeah, I know, right? On a conference and the food is horrible, right? So you get up and you eat Starbucks and muffins and you come home feeling, you know, what they call twired. So you're tired and you're wired. That doesn't happen here, right? (laughs) That's a new word to me. I'm going to use that. (laughs) Isn't it a brilliant word? So this is the antithesis of twired. So the food is fantastic and they have a labyrinth that you can walk around, you know, because the thing about integrative medicine is it breaks down the separation between me, the doctor, and you, the patient, because I am also a person. So the things I learn in integrative medicine are things I can live and put into my own lifestyle. So it's different to you have Ebola and I don't. So this is, you know, when you learn things, you think, God, I need to think about that. How could I do that in my own life? Maybe I'll go to the labyrinth and, and just be. So the day would start with meditation. It might start with creative poetry writing. Mm. And then we do hard science maybe during the day. Um, we typically do yoga. We do Tai Chi. It's phenomenal. So for the first year and a half of the program, we study things sort of it's similar to the medical curriculum in that you study systems. So it could be Ayurveda or botanics or homeopathy or aromatherapy. It could be meditation. It could be yoga. So you learn the science and you're also supposed to practice it. And then for the last year and a half, what we end up doing is studying individual disease states. So it could be cardiovascular disease. Like, how do you apply this to cardiovascular disease? How do you apply it to endocrinology? How do you apply it to oncology, as an example? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is totally amazing. And then we have this pretty awesome graduation ceremony. And the night before we graduated, they brought us onto a rooftop and they had a telescope, which was one of these NASA telescopes. They're the kind of people who get those telescopes. Yeah. <laughs> and we looked at planets and we looked at light that had, you know, been emitted 6,000 years ago. And they were kind of like, no pressure. But you know what? What do you want your legacy to be? You know, are you living a life that's too small or are you going to do something that, you know, in 6,000 years will make a difference? So that was the kind of vision these people had. So it was pretty amazing. Mm. That sounds absolutely incredible. And I think the one of the nicest things I think you said there is how it um, how it changes the practitioner patient relationship. And I think really what something I've been doing a lot in my masters is health psychology and behavior change and looking at how we can communicate healthy lifestyle messages to people and try and reach them on their level and recognize that, you know, health isn't a one size fits all, but it is a size that can be fit to everyone, but it's about reaching the patient where they need to be, you know, reached at, I guess. And it sounds like integrative medicine really does take that into account. And I think that's probably one of the most important things about it is to try and adapt the advice you're giving because everyone's lifestyle is so different, but we all need adapted advice. No one, one day is the same as the next, you know? I, I totally agree. And sort of the old, more puritanical parental style medicine, you know, I know because I read it in a journal and I'm going to tell you how to live your life, even though it doesn't really suit you. Um, integrative medicine is not about that. And integrative medicine is much more, they have a concept of you get on a bus with someone, you go a couple of stops and you get off the bus and you go fishing. That's what they talk about. Mm. The idea being that I meet you where you are. I travel with you. I try to understand where you are. 
But ultimately, you're going to be the one, right, who's going to make the decision whether to eat kale or to eat donuts or whether to do exercise or not. So I'm not going to keep nagging at you, but I will join you where you are. But of course, A, that takes training. And and B, that takes time, which the current medical system, it's not always easy to do that, right? Absolutely. And the time is always limited, whether that's in an inpatient setting or in primary care. I know it's definitely one of the most commonly cited reasons I've seen doctors say for not being able to address lifestyle factors, even at the most basic level, is because they're under that pressure to get on to the next patient and, you know, do obviously everything in the most medically appropriate way, but maybe not knowing enough or having enough time to address those lifestyle pieces. I agree. and But then there's a part of me that says quite a few of my class were ER doctors from the US and they mm. didn't really buy into lack of time. And they all said, you know, they often had three minutes per patient, but they would try to bring something integrative into every consultation. So I think, you know, if as doctors or parents or, or whatever family members, if it's a focus, it can it can actually be woven into to everything we do as long as we make that decision. And as and long also, as I guess, sorry, yeah, you, you, you continue. And also by how we turn up. So again, it's this thing of if I turn up in clinic with a Red Bull and a, and a donut, mm. um, that's sending a message right to the patients. But equally, if I get up that morning and I meditate and I enter into clinic, and maybe I've put some essential oils in the room and I've opened the window and I've organized everything so it's clean and tidy. That also sends a message. So it can be at many levels, I guess. It does. I agree. And I think I think there's, there's two points I kind of the two levels I would take on that. And something I do talk about quite a bit on the on the blog and podcast as well is that we as doctors, we we know from the previous examples that we should be leading by example so for instance you know you wouldn't advise a patient about smoking cessation with cigarette dangling between your fingers you know and I think thankfully public health has managed to get that message out there about smoking but there's so many other lifestyle factors that we have remained largely ignorant of and our patients need the most help with the things like diet and exercise and increasingly I think we're recognizing the need for more improved management of stress and I think that's going to become increasingly the most important issue um, over the next few years. And I think we have to be able to educate our doctors to address it with patients, but also we have to be able to recognize as doctors ourselves how those factors are being applied in our own lives and how we're managing our own stress and managing the, our food, managing um, our exercise, and particularly around such busy schedules as well. It's very, it's tricky. It's very, very tricky. I mean, I agree. I think it's tricky, but it's also doable. And Definitely. I think there's there's another factor that, okay, when I was an SHO, we kind of lived on a diet of the X-Files and Ali McBeal. And I don't <laughs> know if you've watched those programs, right? But it's the concept of that lonely person who sacrifices their entire life based on some elusive goal, their anti-establishment. And there was great bravado. So I remember very clearly that we as doctors thought that somehow because we were doctors, that if we stayed up all night and we did all sorts of crazy things, that it wouldn't affect our health. That just by the fact that I know how the body works means I was somehow immune to diseases. Mm. So there was a definite like them and us in those days in medical school where it was kind of cool to have an unhealthy lifestyle because we were doctors and because we were like so important. And I just don't. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I don't buy into a word of that. Um, and I haven't in a long time, but I can also see that that is a factor in medical school and it's still there today. 
Absolutely. I think it's a journey I've gone on myself over the past 18 months. Um, I'm doing, as you know, I'm doing my thesis on shift work, for my master's. And yeah. it strikes me so much that I suppose how little um, education about self-care that we would have gotten as part of, you know, even just starting out as doctors. And I'm not, you know, I don't go on my podcast to criticize the system. It's more that I think it's something that we're only increasingly become aware of, but we really need to raise awareness about because if we don't care for ourselves, we can't provide the best care for our patients. And yet the norm for so long has been to kind of struggle in silence and to get by on little or no sleep, like night shifts, just get through it, you know, figure out how to take a break. And I think we do, we are kind of reaching a point where we need to educate our doctors on how to maybe address those lifestyle pieces actively as opposed to waiting until, you know, it's, it's necessary for whatever reason. Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, as you know, there's a huge interest in medicine at the moment in burnout mm. and the cost of burnout. But Absolutely. I mean, as you remember, we did a, a wonderful two week wellness program um, together in June and many it young is. doctors attended and it was really cool. But there was one doctor who passed a really interesting comment that, you know, I, I still think about. And he said, I really like what you guys are doing. But at the end of the day, are you not just doing this? So we'll actually be healthy and we can work harder and faster. So there is this kind of interesting paradigm where at least some doctors feel that the whole wellness for doctors movement is there so that they can make less mistakes, less litigation, see more patients. And mm. I guess that is absolutely, in my mind, not the idea for doing wellness. It's exactly what you're talking about. It is self-care mm. um, and being a leader and emulating those practices so that the the patients who see us realize that this is what somebody who's, you know, privileged to be in the know, this is how they choose to live their life because these are best practices. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, it's about, I think it really brings us all back to fundamentally being the same as human beings, having the same flaws. You know, we might have gone through different paths for education and gone into different careers, but that doesn't mean that we don't face the same struggles day to day. You know, a late bus, not wanting to cook, feeling unmotivated to go for a walk or, you know, go to the gym. We all go through those little things day to day. But because we know how powerful lifestyle can be, I think it's so important that both patient and doctor can, as you say, do that journey together. Um, I'd actually, I'd like to ask you, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, um, probably more so in the UK than here. And it's, it's something I've been reading quite a bit about, but there's a lot of chat about lifestyle medicine. Um, and I've seen quite a few UK doctors discuss it. And there's a, an American society, a British society. Uh, how would you say integrative medicine differs with that? I think it's something some listeners might be wondering themselves. That's a great question. And obviously there is overlap between mm. integrative medicine um, and lifestyle medicine. To me, I think the differences are, so lifestyle medicine, I would see as more looking at aspects of your lifestyle to promote health. Mm. Now, an integrative health or an integrative medicine physician can do that too. But where I think we're slightly different is we will also deliberately use integrative medicine techniques to deal with pretty serious medical conditions. Okay. So as an example, there's a center called the Osher Center in San Francisco. And what they have is they have a whole bevy of oncologists, but one of their oncologists did our program in Arizona. So when the oncologist sees a patient and says, okay, you have lung cancer, you need radiotherapy, chemotherapy, surgery, then the patient will have another appointment with the integrative health oncologist who will sit down and say, okay, 
let talk about your lifestyle. Okay. Mm-hmm. What in your lifestyle can we tweak to support you as you go through this journey of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and surgery. So as an example, you would not use antioxidants when you were on radiotherapy or chemotherapy because that would reduce the effectiveness of the radiotherapy. But it might suggest afterwards you might benefit from some antioxidants. Maybe some, you know, hypnosis um, and some meditation and mindfulness might help you with breathing. And that may actually help if you've got lung cancer and you're actually going to lose part of your lung. So they would literally look at major factors in your life, lifestyle, exercise, meditation, spirituality, herbal medicine, Ayurveda, Indian medicine, Chinese medicine, and see what else. But it will be done hand in hand with your oncologist. Now, lifestyle medicine won't necessarily reach that level of kind of nuance, if that if that makes sense. So it's a less applied sort of practice, I suppose, is how it sounds to me. Yeah, it's less targeted. So take, for example, I would often in cerebral, if you took a company like Google or Facebook or LinkedIn, a company that demographically has lots of young people who work really, really, really hard and maybe don't have healthy lifestyles. Okay, Mm -hmm. because life is so exciting and they're working 24 seven. Um, lifestyle medicine will be really good for them. But when it becomes slightly more technical, I think you're looking at an integrative medicine approach. But an integrative medicine practitioner can offer lifestyle medicine. Okay. It's, yeah, it's it's very nuanced, I know. And I know there's this huge amount of work going on in the UK um, as a couple of the doctors that I've been connecting with over there. And it's really exciting what they're doing. I think where it's been probably most applicable or used is in the primary care setting. Um from what yeah. I've seen, and it's it's doing it. There's a lot of um, courses being done, I think, for GPs in the UK, which is which is great to see. Which probably illustrates maybe the demographic it's applicable for. Um, yeah, as opposed to sort of maybe more like an inpatient setting, I guess. Um, and then I suppose I, what I'd like to ask you is, from your own point of view, um, without getting too personal, but how have you found yourself applying sort of this this um, I suppose approach to health in your own life? Or, you know, or even that of your patients, but the principles that you've taken, has there areas within your own life that you've thought, God, I could do with a little bit of integrative medicine here? Absolutely. I guess what it's allowed me to do is to integrate my life better. So I suppose over the years, I was always, you know, searching for something or, or the thing. So over the years, I, I had studied meditation. I had studied all sorts of things, but I had kind of divided my life, if that makes sense. So there was the me that went to work and did my thing. Um, But I would not talk to patients about meditation or I would be kind of embarrassed. I Mm. I definitely wouldn't want them to know in case that kind of undermined my credibility as a hardcore doctor. Sure. So the first thing is from a personal level, um, when I joined the program, like I'd always been kind of almost vegetarian, but I definitely made a decision that vegetarianism was the only possible way for me. So mm-hmm. that's been one very definite change and something that I would not, I can't imagine ever changing at this stage. Um, I think there's some very interesting data on fasting. And again, obviously, you and I don't know who your listeners are, okay? And mm-hmm. obviously, some of them may have health conditions. So what we're talking about is about things I have done, not necessarily things that you should copy without Absolutely. checking with your own doctor, right? I 100%, guess we have to put that yeah. disclaimer, right? Okay. Totally. Yeah. But there's really interesting data coming out about the value of fasting. And it seems that fasting does many things. But one of the things that we know it does is because your body is kind of 
say, it, it notices the deficit of food, it kind of gets rid of some cells that are knocking around that are not so great and reuses some of the material from those cells. That's at a basic level. It's called autophagy. But mm. that is health promoting and it's anti-cancer. So one thing I do is I, I do fast every week now. And I have to say the days after a fast, I feel I feel different. That's that's for sure. Mm. Um, and again, I don't imagine I'll change that in the coming years because it's it's working for me. And that mm. will be very integrative as well. Like you can try something and it doesn't work for you. Well, that's fine. You don't have to stick to it. Um, I had always been meditating, but now I probably take it a lot more seriously. So yes. um, I have to confess, boring though it sounds, I am out of bed at 5.30 in the morning and like I meditate I every morning. I hear you, I do too. <laughs> yes, see? Um, and people will say, oh, I, can't, I don't have time to meditate. But I worked many years ago in, in Africa and there was a whole thing around, oh, can people remember to take their HIV drugs? And I remember one doctor saying, I'm, I'm sorry, but like, has anyone seen someone walk out naked in the morning? They're like, no matter what, people always brush their teeth, right? And they put their clothes on like yeah. they do. So equally, like, I can't imagine going out without meditating. And somehow the day seems to to flow better, I guess, because of it. And I suppose there are um, some supplements I do take on a daily basis. I, I'm not particularly interested in having a six pack and, and you know, all that stuff. Mm. But there are supplements I take because they are anti-inflammatory or um, they have antioxidant properties. And I've read the clinical trials and I believe in them. So that's certainly something that I would do on um, on a regular basis. And again, this is obviously for me, not for all the people listening who could have totally different bodies, but like, Absolutely. I would that's take a really important point to, make yeah, we, you know, above all health, you know, we're not going to do any harm. Right. Yeah. So, um, like I think omega three is a great supplement in general. It's, it's been, it's a very good anti-inflammatory and turmeric is also a very good anti-inflammatory and I probably wouldn't get enough from my diet. So I, I do supplement with that. And, mm. um, I think there's really good data on mushrooms so again, I will try because I, I know obviously food is your thing mm. um, <clears throat> and I will try where possible to cook shiitake mushrooms on a on a, on a regular basis. But I also okay. take mushroom supplements. Um, I think vitamin D is another, um, you know, living in Ireland, we we are not going to get enough vitamin D. So vitamin D is something I would supplement with. And then I suppose the final piece for me is there's a really interesting group of herbal supplements known as adaptogens. And we don't have an equivalent in Western medicine, but adaptogens are things that help you deal with stress. So it puts you back into balance in general. So it's it's weird. It's it's like, you know, when you were growing up, maybe and your mom said you needed a tonic. It's kind mm. of the equivalent, but it's something that helps regulate your neuroendocrine stress system. And I would normally try to take some adaptogen um, and I would cycle different ones. But ashwagandha is my absolute and utter favorite um, adaptogen. And, and being a doctor and just living, you know, in the Western world, there's plenty of little stresses, no matter how much you meditate or how hard you try. So those They're are the kind of avoid. things I would do. <laughs> They're hard to avoid. And I suppose the other thing, and people always go, you do? I go, yeah, totally. I would attend for regular um, acupuncture because, again, in Chinese medicine, it's more about prevention than than cure. Right. Mm. So um, acupuncture is something I would do on a regular basis. So I guess 
have I been doing that all along? Probably. But the difference is now that I've studied integrative medicine, I'm more willing to say, actually, I do all this stuff and mm. I'm proud about doing it. And it, it feels good for me and it works for me. And it, you may need something slightly different, but that concept of a mixture of exercise, changing your diet, having some supplements that would work for you, I think is very integrative. It's really interesting. Thank you for sharing your experience. I think the, I suppose it's really important as well, like you say, to caveat it with that you've obviously done a fellowship in this. You do a huge amount of reading. I know how much you read and I've obviously seen you write for um, a really excellent website, Healthy But Smart, on loads of different topics, um, food, food and otherwise related. I think it is important that you are being your own experiment, but on an informed basis. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, seeing it on BuzzFeed and just jumping on a bandwagon. I think that's something that there's a lot of black and white thinking maybe along different lines of health and nutrition and fitness in the media. And sometimes people can just be a bit, I suppose, duped in by it. But the most important thing, I think, is to be informed and to not be afraid to try different things, but to do it on an informed basis. It's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. The next topic I was going to ask you about was the blue zones, because it ties in quite nicely with the, I suppose, the the way we're thinking from an integrative perspective. And you and I have had a lot of conversations about the Blue Zones. And I think probably a game changer for me was when you gave us um, a talk um, recently, uh, or I heard you give a talk recently about them. Um, and just in case the listeners don't know, um, would you like to just tell us a little bit about the Blue Zones and why you think they're so special? I would love to. Because <laughs> so, you know I agree. I love the Blue Zones. <laughs> so when, when I did the integrative medicine course, I was left with a problem, which was there were so many amazing things to tell patients. And like you say, there's only so many minutes, right? So Absolutely. how was I going to cram all this, like thousands of hours of knowledge from integrative medicine into one consultation and still keep my list flowing? So um, I tried different things, but I came across this incredible concept. And some of you may have already read the book. And if not, it's an amazing read. So it's a book called The Blue Zones. And it was a joint initiative between the National Institutes for Health. These are the guys who in the US are responsible for um, conducting state-of-the-art research. They're based in Bethesda in Washington. Mm -hmm. And I actually spent a summer working there. So um, it's a totally amazing place. Mm -hmm. But they linked up with National Geographic and they asked a really pertinent question. And the question was, who are the people in the world who have lived the longest, healthiest, happiest lives. Because at the end of the day, that's what you want, right? You, you might think you want your cholesterol to be normal and your prostate antigen to be normal, but this is what we really want. So they went around and they looked at birth and death records and figured out where were the places in the world that had the highest percentage of people who lived to be over 100 years old. And they found that there were a number of places. So there was Ikaria in Greece, there was Sardinia, there was Okinawa in Japan, there was Costa Rica, and there was a small pocket called Lomo Linda in California. And they circled these places on a map with a blue pen. So they called it the Blue Zones. So not very scientific, but that's what they called it. It's catchy. <laughs> it's cool, right? And yeah. then they sent researchers in and they started talking to these people who were over 100 years old and asked them, how do you live? Because the theory is, if you find there's not really, say, much commerce between Costa Rica and, Germ and, and Japan mm. or, say, between Japan and um, Korea. 
certainly historically there hasn't. So if you find that they have common habits and if these people are living to be over 100, then that suggests that these are habits that speak to longevity, that, that there's something in these habits. So that's exactly what they did. And again, you know, I just wish that that had been my job. I can't think of anything I would have liked more than spending time in Ikaria talking to people who were over 100 years old and trying to oh, understand. I mean, absolutely. amazing. And okay, as an aside, every time I see a patient who's, you know, a little bit older, but is still full of joy and doing lots of fun things, I always ask them actually mm. what their secret is. But anyway, this was formal research and they found nine different domains. Do you want me to go through them really quickly? Just nine things. Yeah, that... e even as a, a little whistle stop, we won't have to go, oh, we don't have to go into big detail. But yeah, I think yeah. it'd be really nice. And, and we could always do a, a follow up episode to this, and maybe discuss some of them in more detail. Cool. Well, the first one is the concept of moving naturally. And that is, it's not necessarily about going to the gym or making exercise something different in your life, you know, something on your to do mm. list. But moving naturally is exactly what it says, walking up the stairs, walking to the store, walking to work. So I think that's a really nice concept. And I always say the people who run the course in Arizona, what fascinates me is they're now reasonably wealthy and they all wash their own dishes. So it's also the concept that you'd wash your own dishes and peel your own potatoes. So moving yeah. naturally is, is, is one of the things that was shown among all of these groups to have in common. As part of your day, I guess. Isn't it? It's just part of your day. Yeah. 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 So. The next one was knowing your purpose. And this is a great one. So they call oh. it the plan de vida in Costa Rica, right? And my gosh, we could have a hundred podcasts on this, right? We wouldn't cover it. <laughs> but the bottom is line like, is... Like, I'm going to ask you about Ikigai later. Is this similar to the Ikigai concept? Exactly. exactly. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> exactly. But basically the concept is that you love your life, right? Um, so the people who live to be over a hundred, they tended to absolutely love their life and they had a reason for living. And again, as an aside... Honestly, this is something I'd figured out and most doctors had figured out years ago, that if you have someone who really has something they're passionate about, um, they just seem to do well. And it's also something you can talk to them about. You know, why do you want to live? Well, I want to see my flowers grow. And then you can coach or couch all of your um, discussion with them in terms of that, like, oh, we'll give you this treatment and you'll be out in time to see the crocuses grow and then you'll be out in time. So, you know, it's a really yeah. interesting thing. But yeah, knowing your purpose is is absolutely essential. Then the next thing that these people would have in common is the concept of a downshift. So they have something that they do that helps them to relax. So for many, it was prayer, but it was also meditation. It's mindfulness, a siesta. It doesn't matter, but mm. something that you can do. The next one was, and I love this one, it's the 80% rule. Now, any of you who are mathematic um, experts will know there's something called the Pareto Principle. Now, this basically says that 80-20 is a really important rule in life. So 20% of the people own all the wealth, etc. Sure. So it's interesting, again, that we're seeing 80-20 coming up in food, because the fact that it's the same ratio, again, kind of says to me there's something in this. Mm. But this is a Japanese concept. So in Japan, before a meal, these people who had reached over the age of 100 would say, Harihachibu. And Harry Hachibu reminds them to only eat until they're 80% full. And this is so ridiculous. I had no idea why this was <clears throat> until I read this book. So when you eat until you're full, your stomach distends and it sends a message to your head saying, I'm full now, you should stop. But if you wait until you get that message, 
because of the speed at which we eat, you still have 20% more food in your gullet, in your esophagus coming down. Mm. So if you stop at 100%, you actually end up eating 120%, if that makes sense. It does. Right? Yeah. yeah. So stop at 80%. And I just think it's an amazing, amazing concept, which makes, again, total sense. The next one is a concept of a plant slant. Mm. So again, and this is something, you know, the recent research is all showing that a plant-based diet is much healthier than um, a diet that's based heavily on meats. So yeah. again, you could have a thousand podcasts on that and we wouldn't cover it. Better the for next us one, and better for the environment is what we, we kind of uh, now know. But as you say, we could do a whole podcast on it. Maybe we uh, will at some stage. <laughs> the next one is the concept of wine at five. And again, this is not the Irish concept of I'll go to the pub after work and I will drink, you know, 10 Guinness. And I, was I, will about go to say, home. I think a lot of our listeners ears just perked up there. For I a know. Second. But it's not the way that we've done it traditionally in Ireland where you hear this. Oh, it was a terrible day at work. I'll go to the pub. That's not mm. what we're talking about. We're talking about meeting with friends, enjoying a glass of wine, good wine, red wine, ideally. OK, because we know it's full of phytonutrients and carotenoids and they're really, really healthy for you. OK, and it's it's about wine because it's got you know, healthy properties, but it's also about community. It's also about relaxation at the end of a day, sure. but totally not wine and pizza out of a box, you know, watching, I don't know, the X Factor or something. That is not what we're, the Kardashians, we're not talking about that in any way, shape or form. Mm. The next one, which I think is so interesting, is the concept of family first. And anytime I've given this talk, I've, I can see the audience react and, and look a little uncomfortable because I'm going to say, that while many of us say we put our families first, we actually don't. Mm. Most people put the job first and you'll see people who will send their kids to school when they're sick because they're scared of the boss or they'll go on the nights out because they feel they have to. And if you want to, that's fine. But family first means family first. And you'll also see, I guess, particularly I noticed this in Africa, it was really common to go to work and find a child under the desk asleep because say the child was sick so the mom would bring the kid to work oh wow okay. i know it was really so again mm -hmm. ideally the mom would be able to stay home but at least bringing the child with you is better than sending the child to school sick or maybe right. having a nanny step in but family first is a really important concept and it's something that comes out later in the blue zones and there were studies done in philadelphia looking at italian immigrants who adopted a terrible american diet but they had very low rates of heart disease and the reason was they lived in multi-generational homes. And we know that when you live in a multi-generational home, it reduces your stress. Mm -hmm. So even though they had an unhealthy diet, they were still healthier than their American equivalents. Now, when these Italian multi-generational homes broke up, these Italians got the same rate of heart disease as the local Americans. So showing that putting family first and being part of a multi-generational home had cardioprotective effects, which is absolutely amazing. So family is absolutely huge. And that comes in with the, so that kind of goes with the eighth concept here, which is the concept of belonging. So belonging to a family, belonging to some organization, having a sense of belonging is really important. And I suppose just to explain briefly that we know that comes because caveman or woman would never have survived had caveman been separated from the tribe because it wasn't possible to survive in those days. Mm. So we have hardware in our brain that anytime you get separated from your tribe or you perceive you're separated, it reduces or it produces the stress response. 
Mm. And that's exactly what causes cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's. And then the final part and the bit that I'm really interested in, I know you are too, is the concept of the right tribe. Mm. So part of the reason that each of these geographic areas did so well was that each of these geographic areas naturally embraced a blue zone lifestyle. And they call that the concept of the invisible uplift or the invisible lift. So I would say the integrative health program in Arizona is similar. So when I'm doing my residential weeks in Arizona, like it would take a lot of work to be unhealthy. Like there was no unhealthy food around. Um, it was so beautiful. You wanted to go for a walk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the concept of the invisible lift that if the place you are and the people you're with make it easy for you to make healthy choices, then you're more likely to make those healthy choices. So what the Blue Zones tell us is these are the nine habits that the people who lived in the Blue Zones all had. And what it encourages us to do is look at our life and see, can we implement any of the nine? And obviously, the more we can implement, you're going to get compound interest. And that's the blue zone lifestyle, which I think is really cool. And it's kind of like integrative medicine summed up in a National Geographic way. Yeah. Yeah. And I it was, I love it so much as a, as, a, as a range of concepts, but so many of them are so incredibly simple and yet so, so effective. And I think sometimes a lot of a lot of the flaw with how maybe the media might portray health and fitness is that they paint it as a sort of this extremes um, situation whereby you've got to go completely carb free or completely fat free or completely gluten free and like focusing on the extreme ends of the spectrum when actually health itself is a spectrum and adopting a lot of these very, very simple habits. And importantly, as you've said, having the support networks um, internally and around you to make them and make them part of your lifestyle and make them a normal part of your lifestyle and not, you know, having to be healthy in quotation marks, making it a normality and making it the norm in society, I think is just something the Blue Zones do without thinking and something that we can learn a huge amount from in the Western world. I think it would it would solve a lot of problems and it's a lot, you know, more complicated than just overnight changes like that for many people but I do think the concepts and the principles they're based on are very much applicable to so so many it's just getting that message out there to people that it's, it's not as complicated as it might seem. I, I really agree and I think for me there are two other points to this and one is it's free you know, for exactly. so many people, they think, oh, my gosh, I got to join a gym. I got to take supplements. Uh, I, I'll have to go to this fancy place and have a, a meal program delivered to my door. This is all about simplicity. It's mm. about just, like you say, integrating it into your life, which makes to me, it makes total sense and it's incredibly beautiful. Um, but the other part to me that I really like about this is it's about me the person taking control of my own health because I think part of the problem we have is the way society has evolved there is a sense that it's okay for me to go out and do my own thing and work 24 hours 7 and eat McDonald's and every so often I will have a health issue and I will go and I will hand it over to my doctor I will expect the doctor to solve it in the same way as a plumber might solve my washing machine to enable me to go out and do the exact same thing over and over so we hand our health and disease management over to other people. This puts it firmly back in, 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 you know, it's my responsibility. I can do this. These are my choices I make every day. And I really like that concept as well. And importantly, that I guess 
as I say in a lot of my content, that we enjoy those changes. And, um, you know, I think particularly it's it's so early on in a new year. And I remember the time, just around the beginning of January and I saw so many New Year's resolutions coming out. And so much of it is always about complete overhaul and complete restriction and complete radical changes. And actually the sustainable ones, as we know, are the more simple ones, the ones that are what I like to call smart. They're, you know, specific and sustainable and measurable. They're achievable for that person and realistic for that person too. And that will do them with a certain time. And that might be something as simple as, you know, eating your five fruits and vegetables a day or going out for 30 minutes of walking every day. Much of that is is really, really simple to do. And yet I think that simplicity does get lost. But taking control of it, um, I think, is, is the first step, as you say. And enjoying it with people. Um, I think, you know, making a part of your community. Like they do say you're an average of the people you spend. What is it? The five people you spend the most time with. And I do firmly believe that. I think that that's definitely, um, whether it's in your family or your friends, the having the social support to live a healthy lifestyle is, is really, really important. Well, totally. They're either going to lift you up or down, right? Because if they keep saying, go on, go on, and suddenly you're eating pizza out of a box. It's like Mrs. Doyle um, with the tea. Mrs. Doyle with the tea, right? And yeah. then I think... I think the other thing that we underestimate is the concept of orthorexia. So most people are familiar with anorexia, where people don't mm. eat enough. But orthorexia is another very real disease where um, people get so obsessed with what they eat that it actually is unhealthy. And mm. coming back at the core of, say, an integrative health or lifestyle medicine is this concept of stress and the concept mm. that stress hormones are really unhealthy. So if I go into a restaurant and I am, you know, I got to have kale and I got to have this and I got to have that and I'm getting stressed and the waiter is getting stressed, even when that kale comes, it won't actually do me that much good because I've just flooded my body with stress hormones. So I totally agree with you. This concept of the Tao or the Tao or the how we do things. Mm. Um, so doing things joyfully and mindfully, I think, is actually sometimes more important than what we actually do. Absolutely. I mean, the most delicious, most balanced, nutritious salad in the whole world is still that bit unhealthy if it's eaten in a rush at your desk in the peak of stress because you think you can't take a break. You know, if you went out for the walk, got maybe something, maybe something totally different for lunch, but or with a friend, you know, all those things we don't, yeah. food does not exist in isolation and that yeah. workout doesn't exist in isolation. It's all part of your lifestyle. I think that's that's often a message that's lost in the fads that we see, um, you know, reported totally. on media and things. Um, now, we've been chatting for so long and I knew this would happen because there's just <laughs> so much to talk about. But we will be making a part two for all the listeners. We, we do plan a follow up episode to this one. Um, but Seppi, to ask you one last question before we finish up this part one episode. I, I'd love to just touch on the concept of Ikigai. Um, it's something mm -hmm. that I've spoken about on my blog previously and how I, I sort of found it myself in medicine after the first couple of years going, looking at that sort of prevention and lifestyle piece, I found that was what my passion as a doctor was. And like you say, really kind of rediscovered that soul piece. And obviously I, I'm I'm uh, early on in my career, but I think it's, it's really amazing to have found something to, I'm so passionate about early. Um, and I'd love you to just tell us um, in your words what a key guy is and why it's important. And I guess you've told us how you found yours, but maybe just explain the concept a little bit. So again, to me, this is, sort of what in the, in the blue zones would also be the plan de vida or exactly you know your purpose and like I, I there's so many questions that we don't have answers to in in life but I think most people do have a sense that they're here for some reason that there's something that calls them um something 
bigger than us. And there's so many, there's, there's one author who talks about a concept called precession. And mm. the concept is that if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, I don't mean what's right or what's wrong, but what you feel called to do, that everything else will fall into place. And you'll see numerous examples of this in literature. And there's an amazing quotation, which, again, maybe we could just post on your blog at some stage because I won't get it right now. But there's an amazing mm. um, quotation by the author of Dr. Zhivago. Now, if you mm. remember, Dr. Zhivago's author, I mean, that was like long before we had modern science. But he wrote a really interesting piece basically saying that if every day you do the opposite of what you believe and you say the opposite of what you feel, that it has an effect on your stress system. And I'm mm -hmm. like, how did he know? And he said that eventually it'll catch you and eventually, you know, you'll be sick. That's what he basically says. So for me, it's the concept of, of, of being true to who you are and living your passion. And that when you do, firstly, things fall into place. Secondly, you're happier. And thirdly, it's really good for your health because when you're naturally aligned with what you're supposed to be doing, then you find your body isn't distressed. Um, mm. And it's something that really interests me as a doctor, because I look at other doctors sometimes who, for whatever reason, and it's happened to us all, right? You, you fall out of alignment with the best version of yourself. Definitely. Or you don't write, yeah, um, the system eventually gets you and, you know, you go through a patch. But I also see it a lot in patients. And there's a fantastic shamanic term, which... Again, I don't even know if I can explain, but I know what it means. And I think your listeners will. And they talk about yeah. soul sickness. Mm. So sometimes patients come in and uh, they have a bit of a pain here and a bit of a pain there. But they know when you know that it's it's not like something major, like they've broken their leg. OK, mm -hmm. but what they have is soul sickness. And what that means in many ways is that they're not living their passion. They're soul is sick. And that manifests in, in, in physical complaints and so sometimes what I'll actually, how I would use this from an integrative health point of view is if someone comes in and they have maybe different complaints, a pain in their knee and a pain in their head. And now I'm not saying that that couldn't be something serious. Of course it could. But say you've done the examination and, you know, you've done the tests and it's all looking benign, but they still have the symptoms. So again, in shamanism, what you would think, well, is this soul sickness? So then what you might say to somebody is, okay, if, if this disease were your friend, what would it tell you? And I've done this with numerous patients and they always shout back the answer. And it's always something like, I need to open a coffee shop. I have to write my book. I have to leave my job. And then they look around as if to say, who said that? And I'm like, you said that. OK, mm -hmm. so that is a great that to me is exactly what this concept is about, that you can live this passion and it feels great. And even if the world is shouting at you, oh, that's not a good career move. And we've all heard that. If your soul is singing, then it's the right move and it's the right move for you. That's how you know you're following your passion. And in my experience, when people don't, we often end up seeing them in clinic. Mm. And it's very difficult because they, they can't be cured. And this is the concept, I suppose, of integrative medicine. Some things can't be cured in the reductionist model because they don't need anti-anxiety pills or analgesics. They need their soul to sing again. And they'll do that, I think, by finding their plan de vida and living it again. Such a lovely answer. Such a lovely explanation. Thank you. Um, well, what I think I'll do is to finally finish up. 
I'm going to start by asking all my guests one final question before I finish an episode. So I'll have to ask you a part two one as well. But if you had to give our, or want, if you were to give our listeners one tip to help them towards having an Irish balanced lifestyle, what would it be? And I did, I haven't prepped you with that one, actually. No. <laughs> That's a surprise question. But what would be, I suppose, your maybe one take home tip? whether it's been from your own experience or from that, what you've seen with patients, but for more of a balance in life. Without question, to me, it's meditation. Mm. Um, Again, it's something that's free. It's something you can bring with you everywhere you go. And I've never, I mean, I read, I love to read as you know, but I've never read the autobiography of somebody who's super successful and not found meditation in there somewhere. So, like, I really think that meditation is something that could and should be taught to all school children. I think all medical students should be learning it. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, again, if 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 I could only teach people one thing, or if somebody came in and they were unwell, and I could only give them one recommendation, it would be the one because it's the one that. I can't think of any disease state. I can't think of any health state, even if you're super healthy. Like, I can't think of anybody who would not benefit from meditation. Absolutely. I think whether healthy or with a condition, I think it, it just brings benefits to everyone because we all deal with stress every single day. And it, it is the mental antidote, 100%. It's not the only antidote. There's many aspects of life we can utilize to manage stress. Yeah. But to me, the mind is it's just one of the most powerful things that we can learn to tune into and to become more mindful of our thoughts, how we talk to ourselves and the practice of meditation. Like the, I guess it, it does take time to cultivate it and develop it, but gosh, it's so worth it. It really, really is. Totally. Thank you for that. That was an absolutely fantastic chat, Zephi. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast as my very first guest. And I know our listeners will have taken a huge amount of value from our conversation and from the wisdom you have to share so we will be back for a part two, guys. But I want to say a massive thank you to Steffi for everything that she has brought to this episode. And if you do have any questions for us, please, as always, do leave a comment on the podcast or drop me a message on Instagram or Twitter or um, an email, whatever suits you. And um, I will work out a way to get you guys links for Steffi's website and her blog. And obviously, you know where to find me as well. And so I want you guys to stay tuned for part two. And thank you so much, Sethi. I really appreciated you coming on this evening. My absolute pleasure. I will see you for part two. Thanks. Bye, guys. Take care. Bye.